You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Today's episode features Katie Ross, Meredith Singer, and Megan Brown discussing some of the key takeaways from Mobile World Congress America's 2018 and their implications for the tech sector. Welcome back to another edition of the Wiley Connected podcast, where we talk about technology and emerging policy issues. Today, we're going to talk about Mobile World Congress, which took place in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, wireless policy and technology, some of the takeaways from that conference. The Federal Communications Commission and others are setting policies that shape how the U.S. is going to innovate. And at this conference, uh, we heard from those policymakers on a, a variety of important technology issues. So with me today, we have Katie Ross, who is a partner in our telecom media and technology practice, and Meredith Singer, who is a senior associate in our group and who work on wireless and technology issues. Uh, with that, we're just going to jump right in. Um, as the dust settles after an eventful Mobile World Congress Americas, we wanted to regroup and share some insights and takeaways from that show. It's a trade show, but it also has a policy track, and the U.S. and global mobile industries put on this show, CTIA running the Everything Policy Program, focusing on, not surprisingly, 5G, the next generation of wireless technology, the Internet of Things, and a lot of the policy questions that are animating the future of technology in the United States and globally. So we heard from government officials, industry representatives, and trade associations, as well as some state and local representatives. All of these panels provided interesting takes on emerging technology and 5G as we look forward to the future of wireless communication. But a few panels were particularly notable, and we're going to focus on those today. So first, let's start with Katie to talk to us about the FCC commissioner presentations. We're always fortunate to have FCC commissioners come out to Mobile World Congress and talk about what they're interested in, answer questions. Uh, We had three this time. Uh, What were they trying to achieve with their remarks, Katie? At this conference, we heard from commissioners Carr, Rosenworcel, and O'Reilly. And they used this captive audience of technology professionals trade association experts, industry representatives, the people Megan mentioned, to discuss both their pet projects, issues that they're interested in, and also to preview some of the major topics that they have on their agendas for both the near and long-term future. For those of us who follow the FCC pretty regularly, a lot of the big subject matters weren't a big shock. But Chairman Pai has tasked Commissioner Carr with leading federal efforts on wireless infrastructure to get broadband out to America and make it easier to cite things, cite uh, wireless facilities. What was the latest from Commissioner Carr in his remarks at this event? Comes as no surprise that Commissioner Carr wanted to talk about wireless infrastructure. His point of view is that the U.S. is on the cusp of a major upgrade in wireless service with the advent of 5G technologies. And he sees the race to 5G as crucial to maintaining uh, our country's economic leadership. He noted that the private sector is going to be investing more than a quarter trillion dollars to densify their networks with new small cells. And in order to enable this to happen, it's time for an update of the FCC's wireless siting rules. Uh, For a little background, historically, these siting rules applied to large, significant construction projects. If you imagine a 200-foot cell tower going up, that certainly merited careful review by the cities where this was happening. But now, 80% of these new deployments that are going to have to happen are going to be much smaller. Um, Industry has said even the size of a, a pizza box. So the normal, precedented way of undertaking these reviews 
is no longer so applicable to these smaller deployments. So Carr noted back in March, the FCC already took a significant step in streamlining the federal historic and environmental review process that governs construction of cell sites. He also noted that on September 26th, the commission would be voting and now has voted to adopt a declaratory ruling and report an order that will further streamline small cell deployment. The main concepts from this order were new rules that permit but restrain the fees that can be charged for local government review of applications to construct infrastructure. The fees have to be a reasonable approximation of cost instead of just some large, unrelated number. The order imposes shot clocks for localities to process applications for small cell wireless facilities. And the order does try to take a balanced approach and find the trade-offs between enabling localities to review these applications for legitimate reasons such as aesthetics, but also putting in some guidelines to make sure these application processes don't drag on and on and are unduly burdensome. Yeah, for those of us who've litigated these cases, it's a welcome addition to have the FCC doing this. And uh, Commissioner Carr, I thought it was notable, likes to bring out specific examples and note how difficult some, but not all, municipalities can be. He did take uh, pains to praise some of the states who are really being forward-leaning on this. So I thought that was a nice, balanced approach, like you mentioned. So let's move to Commis- Commissioner Rosenworcel, the Democrat on the FCC. She was there, gave a, a very energetic set of remarks on the future of wireless, sort of a big think kind of piece. What is she telling policymakers or telling technologists that we should all be thinking about as we prepare for the future? These were interesting remarks because they were very forward-looking. In Rosenworcel's view, the future is not that far off, and it's time now for spectrum policymakers to be thinking through these issues so that the U.S. is primed to continue its leadership. So her overarching point was that the future belongs to the connected, and she made waves by being, by her account, the first FCC commissioner to start talking about 6G, not 5G, (laughs) but 6G, the next step. By her prediction, 6G is going to require will entail incredible data rates and a huge increase in capacity, which is going to require an unprecedented level of network densification. She's picturing sensors embedded all around us, multiple wireless connections going off pretty much at all times. And to get there, she saw three issues that might need to be revisited with our current spectrum policy. The first being spectrum valuation. She talked about how the Congressional Budget Office goes through the the scoring process with any spending bill. And her perspective is right now, this process doesn't give an appropriate scoring value to unlicensed use of spectrum, which, as we all know, uh, Wi-Fi can add value to the economy. And she doesn't want to see spending held up by the lack of an appropriate valuation. The second was looking at how the FCC conducts auctions. She would like to see more reverse auctions, like the successful incentive auction that took place. Perhaps the FCC could auction more bands at once. She'd like to see more efficiencies and more creative use of the auction process. And finally, she talked about spectrum distribution. She mentioned we should be moving away from the duality model, where there's a framework of spectrum either being exclusive use or shared use, federal or non-federal, and thinking more about dynamic spectrum access possibilities. This is been explored in the 3.5 gigahertz band, which has a multi-tiered sharing approach. She'd like to see more of this and taking it even further into the future. (laughs) She mentioned use of blockchain 
for spectrum access. Uh, not to get too deep into blockchain because that's another topic altogether, but she's picturing distributed databases that are, have a public ledger that could support shared access without central intermediaries in between. She thought this would increase spectrum use and efficiency. So she teed up these issues with the intent to get people thinking about them now so that we're poised to take advantage of them in the future. Great. In fact, her legal advisor, Umer, is a proponent of blockchain, and I've heard him talk about that at several events. So they are definitely thinking far ahead and creatively on what the federal government can be doing to to make better use of Spectrum. So Commissioner O'Reilly, one of the other Republican commissioners, delivered remarks on international spectrum policy. And, you know, this can get sort of in the weeds pretty fast on all the international dynamics here. But what's working in his view and what's not working on international spectrum approaches? Because that's a pretty important piece of the global move to 5G and interoperability and all these related issues. Commissioner O'Reilly's remarks came before a panel on international spectrum issues, and he really took this opportunity to discuss, from a big-picture standpoint, what's really functioning well in terms of international spectrum policy and areas where he thinks perhaps things are going astray. So he offered a critique of what he views as unwise spectrum policy decisions in other countries, such as imposing short license terms or focusing more on generating high bids than thinking constructively about how to get the spectrum out and used productively. He thinks that the U.S. has really got it right with spectrum licensing because they have goals to make the spectrum attractive for all participants, to make sure it's being put to its highest use, and to ensure certainty to foster investment. And specifically, he likes that there are flexible use licenses, that the commission thinks long and hard about the size of licenses and the terms and what performance and renewability obligations there should be to make sure that the spectrum is being used. And he thinks this model is worth replicating in other nations. He also touched on the fact that international harmonization is incredibly valuable. A spectrum does not stop at the borders, and he views um, ample benefits and efficiencies if the ecosystem of manufacturers, service providers, application developers, and others can operate under a common understanding to make things harmonized and interoperable. Now for what he doesn't like, he really came out against some practices in international spectrum organizations where bureaucratic overreach and ineffectiveness are hampering the ability to achieve these international harmonization and spectrum use goals. He has seen nations trying to improperly influence these bodies or using these bodies to advance their own geopolitical interests instead of putting spectrum policy first. So I think O'Reilly's message here is that the U.S. has been successful in putting spectrum policy first, and it would like to see others around the world adopt that too. So thanks, Katie. What what are the key themes that you took away from these commissioner's statements taken as a whole? You know, we have three very senior folks setting federal telecommunications policy and technology policy. What's the takeaway? We heard about infrastructure. We heard about future superfast networks. And we heard about international considerations. And all of these really touch on the race to 5G. It's not just the U.S. who's interested in this next step of wireless and the economic opportunities it can provide. So we see the commissioners, each in their individual ways, thinking about how to advance that goal, how to get there, and enable this innovation to happen in a fair and flexible regulatory environment. And from my perspective, um, technologists, even if they're not directly regulated by the FCC, everyone needs to be paying attention to 
many aspects, if not all aspects of what the FCC is up to, because spectrum and spectrum policy and the regulatory structures for facilitating communications are critical to creating the ecosystem in which all of these innovations are going to be possible. So with that, Katie, you want to take it over? Yep. Next, I'll be talking to Meredith about the Wireless Legal Advisor Panel. With the FCC commissioners delivering prepared remarks this year, it was interesting to have an active discussion with some of the key players behind the scenes at the Legal Advisors Panel. Who did we get to hear from on that panel, and what were the dynamics like? So on this panel, we got to hear from Aaron McGrath, uh, Legal Advisor to Commissioner O'Reilly, Umer Javed, uh, Legal Advisor to Commissioner Rosenworcel, Will Adams, Legal Advisor to Commissioner Carr, Nick Degani, Senior Counsel to Chairman Pai, and Derek Klopin, Senior Advisor to Assistant Secretary Reddle at NTIA. This was a lively and interactive panel that really showed, I think, the bipartisan spirit in discussing efforts to facilitate 5G, and it really showed some of the collegiality between the staffers, even including the lone Democratic office on, <laughs> on the panel. It definitely showcased the administration's recognition of the importance of 5G and its focus on getting sort of the right policies in place to facilitate the U.S. leadership. Not surprisingly, at this panel, Spectrum was a major topic because it's key to being able to offer services and it's a scarce resource. Debates over how to allocate and manage Spectrum are hugely important. Aaron McGrath, Commissioner O'Reilly's advisor, talked about what's going on in the 3.5 gigahertz band. So what's the latest there? So we heard Aaron McGrath describe this proceeding as one of the most interesting, but also one of the more contentious proceedings that she's ever been involved in, which is really saying something. As a background, there's been a dispute here between stakeholders over the proper geographic area license size for the priority licenses that are going to be issued in this band. Generally, the wireless industry has favored larger license sizes, while WISPs tend to prefer very small census tract license sizes. We've been through a series of compromise proposals, but stakeholders have really been unable to land on a proposal that satisfies everyone. Aaron McGrath emphasized that staffers are striving to hear everybody and come up with a plan that works the best for the most people, but also acknowledged that the final plan is likely going to leave some dissatisfied. Um, in terms of timing, she hinted that a final order could be on the October agenda, which would be released in the next week or so. So stay tuned on this. I think we're going to be hearing more from the FCC soon. The 3.5 gigahertz band has been heralded as an innovation band, and it will be a test bed for spectrum sharing, with spectrum access administrators poised to play a key role. In what other ways were the panelists thinking about sharing? So here again, we heard Umer Javed from Commissioner Rosenworcel's office um, hit his one of his talk, favorite talking points on the possibility of using blockchain as a spectrum sharing facilitator, which is a really interesting concept that kind of flips blockchain on its head. Uh, the central premise of blockchain has generally been about decentralization and eliminating unnecessary intermediaries, but it becomes a different kind of thing when you enter into the government space. So it's going to be interesting to learn more from Commissioner Rosenworcel's office about how this could work from a regulatory perspective. I think everyone agrees that using blockchain for spectrum management raises some real technical feasibility questions, but I think one other takeaway here is that there's going to be regulatory questions about whether and how the FCC would be involved in any kind of blockchain solution. Um, so that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. 
We also heard Derek Clopin echoing NTIA Administrator Reddle's remarks about spectrum sharing being key to achieving 5G success. He made clear that NTA is searching for new bands to study and opportunities to implement novel sharing approaches that will make spectrum use more efficient. Um, So we'll have to keep monitoring NTIA to see what they come up with uh, in the near term. Aside from spectrum policy, the panelists agreed that infrastructure reform, as we've discussed, is critical for 5G's success. Uh, By way of background, what makes infrastructure policy such a difficult issue? I think infrastructure policy has been challenging in part because there are such passionate voices on both sides of the issue. On one hand, you have technology enthusiasts and industry looking to make advanced wireless services widely available throughout the United States. On the other hand, you have localities concerned about things like aesthetics, environmental assessments, and ceding control over rights of way, and no one knows more about how those disputes can arise and unfold than you, Megan. <laughs> so would you like to share some of your yeah, skills from the trenches? Yeah, thank you. Um, some localities, I think there's up to 20 states now that have enacted comprehensive siting reform with an eye towards deploying next generation technologies, sort of hanging out the welcome mat. Um to get industry to be in their communities, to offer the valuable services that their constituents want. Some municipalities are a little slower on this or maybe more skeptical about the benefits or maybe more concerned about um, the um, impacts to aesthetics or, or neighborhood quality. I think there it's more of an education issue. And this was addressed on one of the panels at Mobile World Congress by some of the industry and local government representatives on a panel discussing infrastructure where an industry representative noted, you know, we're trying and doing really innovative and clever things to make cells smaller so that their impact on the community is much less. And the local government's uh, representative was saying, you know, they're trying their best to come up with a reasonable approach to this. So people do feel strongly about it. This is stuff that's in people's neighborhoods. But um, the federal government has for decades been trying to streamline these proposals um, and and hit that balance, right? I think the FCC is going to take a lot of um, input on its most current proposals. But um, the, the trend is toward streamlining because the form factor is shrinking on these facilities and the carriers are out there trying to, to make these fit within the communities as best they can. So what did the legal advisors have to say about these infrastructure efforts? So here we heard from Nick Degani and Will Adams that infrastructure is obviously a focal point for the commission. And sure enough, just as they promised, the commission actually voted today at the open meeting to adopt an order that's going to help streamline and modernize infrastructure deployment. But looking beyond today's widely anticipated order, Aaron McGrath also indicated that Twilight Towers are still on Commissioner O'Reilly's radar. Twilight Towers were constructed between March 2001 and March 2005 without undergoing historic preservation review or that lack documentation that such review was conducted. So as a result, these towers are not eligible for co-locations in the same way that other traditional towers would be. The FCC put an item out teeing up this issue at the beginning of the year, seeking comment on how this issue could be addressed so that Twilight Towers could be freed for 5G deployments. Um, But this has also been a contentious issue, and the record showed industry pushing to be able to unleash thousands of these existing towers for rapid deployments, while Native American tribes and other historic 
preservationists urged more caution. I think this is a tricky issue, but following today's infrastructure order, um, Commissioner O'Reilly's office at least signaled that this could be sort of the next frontier for infrastructure reform. But aside from infrastructure, another big concern about the future of wireless relates to security. Uh, Megan, how was that addressed in L.A.? Well, they had a panel um, that Melanie Tiano, who's the director of cyber and privacy for the Wireless Association, moderated. It had on it representatives from T-Mobile, Nokia, AT&T, as well as Evan Ramali from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, within the Department of Commerce. And the main issues that they teed up were IoT security, right? How are we securing all these devices that are going to drive and benefit from 5G technology? And then security in emerging 5G networks itself. Um, to me, the issues, this panel was was fun in a way because they were more specific than they have been at certain other industry venues where there's a lot of discussion about best practices and um, cybersecurity policy, but this really got specific about what's coming down the road on both the network design side and IoT device security. And on that note, did they make any news at this panel? Uh, well, they didn't announce any brand new products like um, Apple did uh, that same week, but they did have a few notable things from my perspective if you care about technology and security. Um, first, the industry representatives laid out in more detail than I had previously heard them describe many of the innovations that are going to make future wireless networks more secure than prior LTE, 4G, and and down the, the stack. Um, this is not just security being built into the wireless transmissions themselves, although security is a key focus in the global standards bodies that right now are building 5G standards, uh, groups like 3GPP, who are right now on a global basis pulling experts from across industry together to come up with those protocols that will enable um, the transmission of radio communications in this new generation. But there are additional innovations that are being developed in how operators are building their core networks that are going to enable more agile security. So one thing that has been interesting to hear about that uh, folks on the panel talked a lot about was how we're moving away from hardware-based networks to software-based networks. Um, some refer to it as software-defined networks, um, network virtualization. And what that means to lay people is as we move from hardware boxes to applications and software, operators are going to be able to do lots of interesting things that will benefit security. For instance, network slicing, which is just sort of a, a cool way to say being able to isolate functions uh, rather than physical pieces. So when you can take um, uh, and segment your network, you can then protect and heal that part of the network more quickly, particularly when you add things like automation. The hope is that networks are going to be more resilient because both threats and incidents can be compartmentalized and addressed in real time rather than at human speed. And the segmentation means that particular functions and even particular data can be protected in risk-appropriate ways rather than having to protect all of the hardware or all of the data that resides in a network and makes a network function. Um, industry also talked about how collaboration is driving these innovations and how companies are working across the globe to address the challenges through open source efforts, through 3GPP and otherwise. One thing in particular that gave it its specificity was we were able, they were able to discuss a new IoT certification program that the that CTIA has developed over the course of the past year that to me represents the private sector stepping up to 
um, in a way, self-police, set some, some baseline standards for, in this case, connected devices that are going to be on wireless networks with a variety of security and privacy controls that are going to be expected in order to get the certification. Um, this builds on a history of wireless and telecommunications sector certifications where the government doesn't tell you what to do. Industry gets together and figure out what works as a technical matter and um, does certifications and uh, verifications on their own. And if you had to say, what was the biggest takeaway from this panel? I thought one really notable takeaway was the message that came from the government representative, Evelyn, from NTIA. She repeatedly emphasized the importance and success of the partnerships that have long existed between the public and the private sector on cybersecurity. So she was very um, positive and framed things up in terms of um, the government sort of uh, getting out of the way, so to speak, or not standing in the way of innovation that will address some of these problems um, standards that will develop or baselines that are going to emerge. She specifically mentioned the importance of public-private partnerships and the importance the importance of private sector leadership instead of what some may think of as premature government selection of approaches or standards. And this also came up in the context the panelists were discussing um, automated distributed attacks or botnets and and how that is an increasing focus for the government. She and others lauded uh, industry efforts on that front that continue. But some reports that have come out that really emphasize the need for creative and aggressive collaboration rather than regulation. So that, to me, was a, a big takeaway from this panel. So we can wrap up. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Katie. Um, the Mobile World Congress Americas featured a lot of interesting technology. All across the LA Convention Center, there were um, drones and connected this and smart homes and all kinds of um, interesting applications and tools and augmented reality. And the energy that surrounded all of that technology illustrated the importance of getting the underlying federal policies right. I think that was a theme across all the FCC commissioners, um, that in order for consumers to reap the benefits of all these innovations, the FCC and industry need to push ahead and resolve uh, some policy issues and technology issues. So we're looking forward to seeing how all of this unfolds in the coming months. And uh, thank you for joining another edition of Wiley Connected. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Rhine LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.